You're listening to Plants in Place, a four-part ecology and ethnobotany podcast produced by Groundwork. I'm Riley Lopez. Groundwork is a Colorado nonprofit. We offer educational programs in Western Colorado focused on deepening people's relationships with the places they call home. We teach about seed keeping, ecology, the Colorado River, and relocalizing culture. This podcast series is a four-part introduction to a few topics related to ecology and ethnobotany. If you're interested to learn more in a hands-on setting, Groundwork offers courses on human ecologies of Colorado for all ages. The program set up a base camp in national forests of western Colorado, spending days exploring the ecoregion and learning to understand people's relationships with plants. Registration information for upcoming ecology programs is available on Groundwork's website at layinggroundwork.org. There you'll find information on our instructors and dates for upcoming programs ranging in length from a long weekend to a full week. These podcasts are made available without a paywall. In accessing this podcast episode, we ask you to consider a form of exchange. We do accept donations to support our work. And we also encourage you to consider other forms of exchange, too. Please share about our work here. Take an action that gives back to the earth, including singing your song or spending time tending the earth. This ethnobotany talk series was designed by Gabe Crawford. Gabe is a naturalist and ethnobotanist working on experimental archaeology projects throughout the Intermountain West, tracking the parallel lives of people and plants by locating semi-wild patches of biscuit roots and other carrot family plants in the tablelands of Colorado, Utah, Idaho, Oregon, and Wyoming. Born and raised in Colorado, Gabe has devoted his life to the pursuit of place-based living. From his studies with many teachers, Gabe has become a renowned teacher on tending semi-wild food plants. He is dedicated to decolonizing modern people's views of the ecosystems they're a part of, bringing traditional foods back into more common use, and breaking down the mental divide between the cultivated and the wild. In this first talk of the series, Applied Ethnobotany, we explore the foundations of ethnobotany itself, connections between people, food, place, and culture, and getting to know Colorado through this lens, and the importance of having a sense of identity rooted in the place that you live. We hope you pause with us, honor the generations who have come before, and the generations that we are borrowing this earth from. This talk was recorded live on July 7, 2022, from Groundworks Home on our working educational seed farm, which resides on the ancestral homelands of the Nuchu or Ute people. Introducing Gabe Crawford. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. Oh man. All right. Um, yeah, welcome. It's, um, this is pretty amazing. I think we have about 17 people in here, if I counted correctly, which is about what we were maybe predicting. And that's pretty awesome. I think it's really amazing that all of you chose to come to this. Like, I'm always really paying attention to what people go out of their way to come to, you know, as a way to really track, like, what are you interested in learning? So the fact that all of you came out of your way to come and do this, you're supporting me in the in the work that I do in this, which is really hard to support because I, I still have to participate in capitalism to an extent, you know, but like this work that I do involving field research and collecting and planting uh, seeds of traditional first foods, it takes a lot. So y'all coming and doing this is like, 
you're kind of helping me break a new trail in like how I engage this work. And uh, thank you, Jeff. Jeff and I have been living together for about a year now. Yeah, so, and just as a little disclaimer, this is an incredibly complex topic. Like we only have about an hour and I'm totally okay going a little bit over an hour, but um, that's why we chose to do a four part talk series. This has been something that I have over time been um, reconciling as like, this is a lifelong commitment for me, just like this whole field of research that I've been engaging with and it's constantly evolving and it's opening up in ways to me that I am never really anticipating and it's changing constantly. And the best thing I really know how to call this is, you know, is a couple words, it's ethnobotany, ethnoecology, and ethnobiology. And ethno is culture, right? Like what is ethnobotany? Ethnobotany is, to me, it's the broad array of all these complicated intersections between people, place, culture, food, plants, and ecology, and natural history too. But before I get too far ahead of myself, I just wanna tell a little bit of my story and how I got into this, and a little bit of context on my life that kinda got me to where I am right now. I, I grew up outside of Durango in a rural Mormon community actually, and I grew up in a multicultural family. My mom is from Brazil, and my dad is from Tennessee, and I don't know if y'all know this about Mormons, but Mormons are like hardcore, like doomsday preppers, and they all have like a couple years supply of food in their basement all the time. So I, <laughs> I grew up with this like, this emphasis around food and my mother being from Brazil, she is like very well acquainted with traditional Brazilian cuisine. And I was like really fortunate to grow up in the kitchen cooking with my mom and getting to learn just about food. And food has been the kind of thread through this whole adventure for me that ties everything together. Because like, what, what can we not live without? It's like food, like food. We're all here eating food together. We create culture through food. And because of that, just my mom getting me into food and me working in the food service industry for like collectively about a decade, I really started to really assess our food system as a whole just through my experience of observing like, oh, how do we relate to food as a culture? Growing up, I got to go spend a lot of time in Brazil where my mom very intentionally took me to the favelas or the slums in Brazil and showed me just like this, this is like what real poverty looks like. This is what, like she was really intentional about wanting to show me just like how privileged and how good I have it here, especially in relationship to food. And this kind of created this passion for food that turned into this. This little altar I have here is all about food, you know? And ethnobotany for me is this study about people, of all the complex intersections of people, plants, place, culture, natural histories like geology and geography and how it all relates to historical food systems that are still alive today that we don't really see as being there. And what I have here with all of these seeds and these, what, these are all traditional first foods that we look at them as wild plants. I don't look at them as wild plants. I look at them as uh, cultural heritage species. These plants are all traditional first foods. These, these plants have been 
used culturally for millennia by indigenous peoples across this country, and they still are. And um, one of the reasons that I really hunkered down back to Colorado is because I learned about this stuff when I was living in the inland Northwest, and I met this person named Finn. And Finn's story is really crucial to my story because she lived on horseback for about 30 years um, in the Great Basin of Nevada and in Idaho and Washington and Eastern Oregon, like planting and digging and moving around these traditional first foods. And um, she is really, really kind of crazy story that her life was pretty complicated. She grew up in the John Birch Society, which was a radical Mormon right-wing militant group in Northern Idaho. And she grew up in this very militant upbringing and then left that and then started spending a lot of time with Paiute and Shoshone and Nez Perce people who started teaching her about these foods and she kind of just took off with it and started living on horseback, digging and planting these, these foods. She was really tuned into climate change and she introduced me to this concept of uh, these plants as refugees without legs. And this is a big part of the work where like Jeff's work and I, and my work really intersects where we're working with climate change through really different avenues, you know? Like there's a lot of research data, especially facilitated by uh, tribal by the tribes that are tracking how climate change is affecting like the traditional ranges of these first food plants and with the seasons changing and and our climate drastically changing a lot of the native ranges of these plants are shifting and so we've been engaged in the very taboo and tricky legal gray area of a, a, a thing called assisted migration which is moving these seeds outside of their native ranges into places where they can start adapting to climate change because um, a lot of this is really about preserving cultural heritage species and thinking of food systems that are a lot bigger than what we think of within our limited agricultural context. You know, all of these seeds and all of these foods are part of living cultural landscapes that are these wild gardens. And through this work, I've really started to throw up in the air, like, well, what really is wild? You know, if like what we think of as a lot of these wild plants are actually plants that have been selectively and intelligently harvested by Native Americans for so long, and that they've intentionally actually been put there, that these plants are actually a form of archaeological artifact. These are cultural heritage species that when I'm out and I'm like actually finding these plant populations and cataloging them, I'm actually engaging in a form of experimental archaeology where I'm not really looking for like hard artifacts. I'm looking for plant populations and specific plant communities of culturally significant food plants that are not there by accident. And so, yeah, I spent a lot of time with Finn before she died a couple of years ago. And Finn was, um, she was a genius, you know, and I really owe a lot of where I'm at to her. And I also have really taken this in a different direction as she did and i think at the the crux of what this is all about this is about reciprocity you know is about engaging the landscapes and these food systems in a way that uh, we are like a living cohesive part of our local ecology and local ecosystem and landscape and this kind of this kind of direct relationship to our food not that we grow by like highly altering the landscape in the way that traditional agriculture is, but this 
this direct relationship with these foods that we would call wild foods. This is, uh, this can be, and I use can be for a reason, this can be a really incredible form of field research and citizen science because it is, if, if you're doing it very intentionally and intelligently and paying attention to the bigger picture of your whole ecosystem, you learn a lot because you're not going out in the traditional field science way of just objectively observing. And I wanna kind of shed some light on like how we observe affects what we observe. You know, like if we observe as a separate entity rather than as an active participant, you know, our outcomes are gonna be a lot different. And the way we take responsibility is gonna be a lot different. And the way our culture shapes around our relationship to land is gonna be a lot different. And this is where Jeff and I's work intersects with all these different things. It's like, it's not focusing on technology as ways to shift our way of living. It's actually focusing on who we are as people, as humans, using history as a guiding point to see like, well, what, what are healthier ways to relate to this place? And how do we create new, and how do we heal and create new culture and senses of identity in a place that, in a way that's culturally sensitive too? And this concept of place, raise your hand if you've, if you're, if you've heard of just plate, the concept of like place or being place-based or like place as a concept. There's landscape and there's place. I think, and I just want to shed some light on the fact that place and land are actually, they're intersecting, but they're different. Like we bestow place on a landscape and place is a cultural thing. It's a story. It's a it comes with stories and it comes with relationship and it comes with meaning and meaning isn't something that like just is bestowed upon us from some other source meaning we are actually like a meaning making story generating species that's like what is really interesting about being human is that we create stories and that's like how we make sense of our world is through storytelling and story is this avenue that we have a sense of place through and obviously right now we're going through a quite a shaky time culturally where a lot of these things are up in the air and we're asking a lot of questions about like, well, what is the right way? And I think that there is no right way. There's a lot of better ways, but there is no one right way. And that in the context of like science, a lot of this stuff is highly subjective. And that's like one thing that myself as like a wannabe citizen scientist and a wannabe ethnobotanist, somebody that really cares about like collecting this data, even though this data is like, I don't know where it's going, but I'm collecting it, you know, and like just spending a lot of dirt time out in the field, like collecting seeds, digging these plants and really developing these relationships with them and like experimenting with all of the different ways that I can eat and plant and move and just like have relationships with these plants. I've discovered that a lot of this stuff is really subjective and that there is not this one objective truth, but there's a lot of different subjective truths. There's a lot of subjective ways to approach a lot of these things when it comes to ecology, because what is ecology? Like ecology comes from the root word in Greek, oikos, ekos, which is home. Like economy and ecology, they have the same root word, which is home. If you, you look at ecology from that lens, you know, it kind of changes your perspective on it, you know, because it's such a broad term. Within ecology, you have all, you have the entomology, botany, you know, microbiology. It's such a vast field. It's so vast that people usually become specialists 
within one field. And I've kind of just become a bit of a generalist in a lot of these things just because I don't really know where I'm going with this, but I've been following this trail of breadcrumbs, you know, in the form of these bread roots, you know, and piecing things together and doing a lot of historical research and using friends' passwords to their academic access for university libraries so I can just get a lot of the academic literature in my head and like sift through it and be out in the field and just kind of compare and contrast and be like, well, there's actually a lot of ways that not working for a bureaucratic organization, I have a lot of flexibility to ask bigger questions. But what I lack is actually the funding and like the support and the infrastructure to like do this in an organized way that doesn't make me go crazy. So it's like a really interesting thing. But with place, right, to loop back around to place, what is our sense of self in place and why is that important for us today? You know, like why, why do we actually need to have a healthy sense of ourself in relationship to our place? And why is that such a fundamental part of what it is to be a human being, of having like a sense of identity rooted in the place that you live? And like, what does it mean to do that? And what I've found over time is that having a sense of ecological literacy is fundamental in that. Like, how well do you actually know the landscape that you live? You know, like, how well do you know all the plants? How well do you know the birds? What are the stories of the places that you live? And if, you know, you get to know me over time, you'll start to see that. Like, any time I meet old families that have lived in this area for a while, I'm always asking them about just, like, what their stories are. You know, because, like, a big part of this work is really kind of a set, like, analyzing how human migration patterns have affected plant populations and plant dispersal and how you know this place has been shaped by this new culture that came in in the form of like colonization and all of the baggage that comes along with that you know so with this work in ethnobotany it's all about pulling in as many intersections as possible people place plants food culture stories history and so much more. And like what I've found is that history is probably one of the most critical components of this because in order to have a good reference point for how we can like heal our culture and create healthy senses of ourselves, identity and cultural identity in a healthy way, we have to be really culturally sensitive too to the history of like this country, you know, like um, genocide and white supremacy and colonization are just a reality that I have been exposed to through my research with ethnobotany and through these plants in a way that like is not a big part of the conversation unless you have spent time with a lot of other indigenous people that are like yeah our traditional first foods were one of the most fundamental things that were attacked by the government and by the military like because these foods are our creation stories and our creation stories are connected to these foods our ceremonies are connected to these foods our languages are connected to these foods and by cutting off access to the trade networks and to these foods that was one of the biggest effects of colonization on genocide was through food through traditional foods that we we see these as just like native plants that just are around but they're not. They are highly storied, culturally significant first foods that have been moved around. And a lot of their populations aren't really random. They were brought there, they were planted there intentionally. So it really brings up a lot of these questions that I'm always having complicated conversations about when it comes to topics like invasion biology, which we're gonna talk about 
in the next topic of like, well, what plants belong where? And I'm trying to say that it's subjective and it depends on what kind of lens you look at it through. You know, I approach this through a highly historical lens and it's like, well, people have been moving around plants for a long time and what we think of as native, it's all based on a historical baseline that can change at any time, you know? So this is, it's a big topic, y'all. It's complicated. There's a lot of different intersections and it's changed and it, there's a lot of little rabbit holes to explore in this subject. But one of the most important things is context. You know, like what, it, what kind of historical context do these plants and these plant populations and the stories of these landscape open up, open us up to, and how can that shift how we relate to our places, to our home? You know, like how can that shift how we take personal responsibility on the landscape as a, not as like an active bystander or somebody that just lives here, but as like a co-creator, as a participant, you know, I think we, we really need a lot of people that are taking responsibility for our place in this world and for our local landscapes and willing to advocate for the fact that land management, as much as I hate that term land management, because it's so just broad and overarching, it's, trying to advocate for the nuances of more place-based land management instead of broad strokes of land management systems that are implemented by, you know, these big organizations that the first thing that they actually have a priority for is like, is money, you know? And that's what land is managed for first. And this is what I've learned by hanging out with a lot of fire, wildland firefighters, talking to forest service people, talking to rangeland managers, talking to just like people that work in the field. It's all about the money folks first and everything else comes second. And when you look at it through that lens, you're like, yeah, there's a lot of holes in the system. And I'm not like trying to go poo on like the people that are trying to do their best in these land management organizations. I know a lot of people that put up with the bureaucratic BS just so they can like do what they love and like pursue a career in like wildlife biology or botany and just just so they can be able to like exercise their sphere of influence the best way they can working within the broken system that we have and that's why I've been trying to weave my way through doing this work um, getting support where I can because it's like a really complex issue that people ha can have a lot of feelings about. Like when I start talking about like gathering a ton of seed and planting it on public land, like some people get pretty butthurt about that. They get pretty upset because they're just like, why would you do that? Like, how dare you? You know, like, who do you think you are to do that? You know, and it's just like, well, why not? You know, like these plants, these plants are important. You know, it's like these plants are actually like living cultural heritage and none of these traditional first foods are actually going to become invasive because the only way that they can actually really extrapolate their populations in that way is when people are harvesting them because they love that intelligently applied disturbance and that gets in back to this thing of reciprocity when intelligently harvesting your food from the land in a way that's like well-timed, you make more of what you harvest. Like you give and take in the same movement. And this is like a way that we can all become active participants in our landscape is by going out of our way to plant back what we're harvesting, you know? So like when I'm digging biscuit roots, I'm either going back later to plant them or I'm waiting when, until they're in seed and I'm digging them when they're in seed and just planting the seed right back in the hole. So every one root I dig, I'd put back like 30. And that's what's historically been done with these. And like the genocide of indigenous peoples on this continent and the eradication of grizzly bears 
in the lower 48 has probably been the most detrimental thing to a lot of these wildflowers because I don't know if y'all knew that grizzly bears are actually professional wildflower gardeners. They eat a lot of these root foods like biscuit roots and all the different bread roots. And the, when you see a grizzly bear go through the land and like dig these roots, it's like they create like a mess. They just tear it up. But then you go back over the next couple of years and the wildflowers are just like thicker because a lot of these foods have co-evolved to disturbance, you know? And like intelligently applied disturbance is a technology that we've been using for a long time. Fire, coppicing, you know, anybody familiar with weaving baskets or anything, you know, like when you coppice your willow, that, that is a type of disturbance that modifies the growth of your willow and makes them grow straight shoots. You know, so this is kind of where we get into the whole concept of anthropogenic landscapes, cultural landscapes. Has anybody ever heard of this concept of a cultural landscape, anthropogenic landscape? Like what are cultural landscapes? We live in them. We're, on, we're with them and in them and participating in them all the time. You know, the cultural landscape of the North Fork Valley is orchards, hay, cows, and farms, you know, irrigation. Like humans, we are habitat modifiers. We, we modify our habitat to meet our cultural needs. This is fundamental, you know. We're, we're basically, has anybody ever heard of a keystone species? Raise your hand. So humans are in, like essentially a hyper keystone species because we can remove and introduce other keystone species. You know, so we have a lot of responsibility and we really do influence our local ecology, but we still kind of think we're like separate from it, you know, but we're really an integral part of it. And like, our nar cultural narrative is that the best we can do is reduce, reuse, and recycle, and that like best we can do is just mitigate harm. There is more historical context of humans like doing opposite of actually being like having a symbiotic relationship to our place. And food is how we do that. You know, food. We grow food. We grow cultural, culturally significant. Um, I like plants for textiles, for containers, for all these things. And because we live in, in an industrial world where we don't have to have any kind of connection to that, this is a foreign concept. But imagine a world where you had no access to plastic containers or the industrial supply system. Where would you get all of the containers that you take for granted and throw away every day? Where would you get them? You'd have to harvest it. And then harvesting it would become a big deal. You'd actually have to like really think ahead for how you harvest it, how it grows and how to think in a more long-term return system that's really thinking about how do you set the next generations up for success now? Like this world doesn't belong to us. It belongs to those who are not born yet. You know, we're really just borrowing it from them. And we're like, the goal is to set them up for success. And that was a big thing that I got from Finn. You know, she's the only elder I've ever had that really looked at me in the eye and, was in, and cried and said, your generation is really being handed. <laughs> a mess and I hate that you know it's like why she did what she did you know she took it really seriously and the historical context of these foods and how these landscapes were managed and still are managed in a lot of tribal contexts it was always thinking about the next generations that's why you give and take in the same movement that's why you go out of your way to plant back so everyone you take you're giving back and you're like 
living in this constant state of reciprocity, not just for yourself, but for the whole ecosystem. So it's a lot more ecocentric framework of living. We're very ethnocentric and we're very human centered in absolutely everything. And we just have a lot of momentum and inertia going with that. And really all we can do is to like exercise our own personal sphere of influence to start living in a more eco-centered way of life that starts thinking about these things, you know? And, um, and this kind of like, you can tell what kind of values a culture has by the cultural landscape they inhabit, you know? Like there is this saying in Hawaii that says like, the health of the land reflects the righteousness of his people, you know, and I've always like really been like, yeah, wow. You know, like cultural values are reflected on the landscape. When you're driving through like Midwest corn town, what, what kind of cultural values are you, is it just very plain that like how we modify that landscape is reflecting back, you know, monocrops, herbicides, you know, it's just, it's industrial agriculture that really does reflect back cultural values. Here, it's landscape modification in the form of water augmentation, water diversion, cows, you know. I think one of the, the people that have the most say in the cultural values that get the most resources and time and effort, you know, are, are, are ranchers, you know. Ranchers are probably some of the most gangster and influential people in the West. They are most of the time the descendants of a lot of the original families that came across the Intermountain West and in a lot of the places like where I learned about this stuff in Southern Oregon and in Northern California, they are the descendants of the people that like murdered a lot of like the Klamath and Modoc people, you know, like the, in the California Indian Wars. It wasn't the military that was going there and, and killing the natives. It was the rancher. It was like the pioneers that were doing it. Those old families are still living there. They're still calling the shots. They're grandfathered into positions of like political power, resource management, and like what is the most fundamental resource that like we are able to do everything we, we can do in this like high desert landscape. It's water, you know? And so water is like how we use water is like really the biggest reflection of like the cultural landscape of the Intermountain West, which is what organizations like the Bureau of Reclamation were found on and they're the people that built all of our reservoirs and augmented all our waterways and the bureau of reclamation they're basically the most unchecked one of the most powerful uh gangster government organizations that have uh, that has ever existed and they were the water people and the, their name bureau of reclamation was reclaiming the desert and turning it into something that is not because they saw that they didn't see this desert intermountain landscape for what it was, which is actually a very beautiful and abundant landscape with a lot of beauty and secrets. You know, if you know how to look, if you have the eyes to see. They saw it as a landscape that needed to be turned into something akin to like east of the Mississippi River. You know, they wanted to re-green the desert. And that is a really important reflection of our cultural values, you know, is like domination, you know, subjugation. It doesn't really, we don't really work with with police, we work against police. And we're really starting to see the consequences for a lot of these things, you know, like on the big picture, this is like why asking these big picture questions is important because when you start looking at cultural landscapes, it kind of opens you up to this whole broad picture of like, well, what is actually happening on a big picture scale with like climate change and water policy, you know, like all of these river, like we live in the Colorado River Basin, you know, and we're going through a massive biotic shift along with a drought that these drought cycles happen naturally, but our 
water management systems have drastically changed these things and are making this drought a lot more severe. And one of the biggest thing that's happening is water salinization because of how we've taken all of these waterways and we've opened them up into these big reservoirs and we've created a massive surface area that can be hit by the high desert sun and evaporate and concentrates the minerals and salts in these watersheds. The Colorado River is already a very salty river and it moves more sediment annually than the Nile River. A really unique landscape in relationship to this watershed that ties it all together. And the Colorado River is the most over-allocated river in the world. And this whole house of cards that's been built on the Colorado River, which is our Intermountain West, all these cities and towns, you know, in this like little pseudo-agricultural utopia that we like to think we live in, it's built on water diversion. And that water diversion has a cost. And that cost is, is more drought. That cost is sedimentation building up at the dam of Lake Powell. That cost is uh, these massive shifts in all of these ecosystems that are shaped by this river shed. And we're gonna talk more about this in the next series on invasion, like how, kind of deconstructing invasion biology and like looking at kind of the big picture of like why these biomes are shifting and why these new plant species are coming in and doing so well. But what I'm really trying to get at is like cultural landscapes reflect cultural values. I want to encourage you all to develop a sensitivity of how to read the landscape in that way. Cause like a lot of this is about tracking, you know? like tracking the landscape, tracking plants, and just kind of being able to like read your place and develop a personal sense of ecological literacy and understand what these plants that you're looking for are like, what kind of soils do they like, what kind of, what kind of south or north, east, west facing slopes they like, what kind of, like what kind of, how the hydrology affects them and how it's all connected. Like I can't get into this subject without looking at the whole picture because like all of these things are connected and we're all a part of this and we all are participating in co-creating these cultural landscapes, whether we know it or not, you know? And I just like want to encourage sense of, just like to cultivate a sense of personal responsibility for that, you know, to like really participate in your place like that. And to me, that's like what applied ethnobotany is all about. You know, ethnobotany is about like the cultural relationships to people and plants and how like people and plants create culture. And there's like this weird little feedback loop that goes, people makes culture, makes people makes culture, makes people makes culture and so on. But really it's food makes people, makes culture, makes people, makes culture. But landscape makes food, makes people, makes culture. And it's a, it's a feedback loop, you know, because it all starts with our place, you know how different would our culture be if we were actually developing and actually really eating from our place and we didn't have access to the whole industrial supply system? It'd be a lot different. We'd be looking at ourselves a lot differently. We'd be looking at our kids a lot differently. We'd be looking at like how we take care of these places a lot differently because you have to. You know, when you don't have like the safety net of Babylon to fall on, you really gotta think ahead. And I think that right now is a really important time to start thinking about that. We're seeing change getting real, you know, like on in a lot of different ways. And that's why I take this so seriously because like personally, no offense, I have no faith in agriculture, you know, and that these roots and these foods have like shown me a way of like, wow, no, this is a vastly different food system that's based in like long-term, very long-lived perennial foods that have like this long-term return cycle. And like, it's really made me look about, look differently. Like how do people, how does the landscape influence how people live on the landscape? And the more I've gotten to know Colorado, 
And the more I've gotten to think about like other landscapes around the world that are similar to this intermountain, high desert mountain region, places like Afghanistan, people have always been nomadic in places like this. The last place I wanna be right now is in this hot little desert valley in the summer. I wanna be up high. And traditionally that's how this was, man. People were up high right now. These were overwintering grounds in these low areas. All the food is up high right now. And that's the thing, it's like, it's like this, this uh, gradient. You, you follow the food up in the spring and then you follow it back down in the fall. And here it was like in the spring, you're harvesting like your early spring biscuit roots and bread roots in these like lower elevations and then you're moving up biome by biome until like the peak of summer when berries are popping and then you move back down to pine nuts in the fall and then back down to your overwintering you know and there was this massive web of trade networks that like when the berries or the pine nuts weren't good in one area they were good in another area when the hunting wasn't good in an area it was good in another area and people were actually able to really sustain themselves and their cultures by trading with one another. And that was the thing about the history of this country is that like trade networks were attacked, food systems were shut down, people were forced to depend on like the commodity, the commod diet, you know. Tribes that had very sophisticated political trade relationships with, with one another were turned against one another and forced to like actually track each other down and were co-opted by the military as just like a, you know, in the, in the quest of genocide. So it's actually like, it's a really big thing, you know, and like, it, and, and I apologize if I feel like I'm jumping around a lot, but that's just like kind of the reality of this topic. You know, I can't really explain one thing without like getting into all these other things because it's all connected and it's all relevant. It's all relevant to us. You know, like this is what quiet ethnobotany is about. If you really want to get into this as a thing, like, knowing the history of your place is crucial under i won't when i am showing people plants i like won't even like actually talk about any of these plants until i make sure like people actually have a fundamental understanding of like colonization and and the genocide that happened here because it's you know this stuff is really sacred it's very culturally significant and we have to like hold this with an extreme amount of cultural sensitivity you know like this isn't for it's not something to make a business out of it's not something to be it's not something to be disrespected you know like this is this is actually like really culturally significant sensitive stuff and it's taken me years to come around to being able to sit in front of to stand in front of a group of people like this and actually like share this you know in a way that i can actually maybe support myself a little bit because i'm just like i don't know how to i don't this is I have to be really sensitive to where this information comes from. And I've been really blessed to be able to spend a lot of time with like, you know, a lot of native friends up in the inland Northwest on like the Colville Reservation and on the Nez Perce Reservation that have opened up to me about these foods and hanging out with Finn. And she was just like, yeah, this stuff is like, it's very anti-capitalism. And once you learn about this, it's gonna be really hard to go back into that. And that's the tension I feel like I'm holding all the time is I'm like trying to like, walk with this and participate in this world and get by and and it's really hard it's really hard on the mental health you know because it kind of cracked me open to a world of history and of how things can be the way finn finn phrased it she's like i'm lifting up the fence for you you know and there's like you can go but once you go you're not really going to be able to go back and that's like kind of how I've been trying to, I've been walking with this tension I've been holding for the past few years with this of like, well, how do I, how do I put this out in a meaningful way and, and um, convey the significance of this to people? You know, like I want y'all to leave. 
I want y'all to like take time to really look at these seeds and look at these foods and really like understand that what you're looking at is alive. What you're looking at is like timeless. It's, 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 it's inherently a spiritual thing. If you ever get to witness a longhouse ceremony up in like the Northwest and in the inland Northwest, the longhouse ceremonies are the when they serve their first foods, they serve them in the order of their season. Season by season, each food is served in the order of like the time of the year that it's harvested. And there's like stories and there's prayers and there's songs and there's like so much these foods represent. And although I don't have that same cultural connection to this, I, I feel the weight of it. Cause I'm like, wow, this is like a window into colonization that I never would have known existed. And that these foods are still here and that they offer these have been our co-evolutionary friends for a long time, humans, you know? And for me, I'm just like, I've kind of had it with trying to farm in the Western Slope. I, I would rather just like, I'd rather just be like wild tending out and just harvesting wild food and like planting it back. Cause I don't gotta go and put in the same kind of input. I gotta put a lot of input, but it's different. And it kind of just creates this different sense of identity of just like, wow, the more I eat from this place, the more I become this place. Cause you are who you eat. Like you're not what you eat. Cause when you say you are what you eat, you're kind of like objectifying your food. You know, you're not seeing it as like, no, you're, you're eating life. You know, like these plants are alive. These animals that we eat, they're alive, they're of this place. And when you engage in this in this way, you become your place. When you eat a bunch of service berries, you're eating the sweetness of this landscape. And then when you really contemplate it in that way, there's something so inherently, there's something inherently spiritual about connecting to your place through your food. You're becoming your place on like, a, fundamentally on a biological level. And that does influence who you are. It, it, you, it does influence your identity. And, and it kind of brings me just back to place and this concept I learned when I was on the Nez Perce Reservation and when I was with my friend, you know, she was going to Northwest Indian College and she like let me read some of her readings in the school by Vine Deloria Jr. He's like a really good scholar, like a native scholar. And he wrote this book called Power and Place. And she like let me, told me to read this chapter. And it was just, it blew my mind because it, it, it kind of discussed their, the, the philosophy of just like how people, how first people see themselves in a relationship to their place, which is power and place equals personality. And by power, I'm talking about like, whatever you wanna call your connection to creator, God, source, and your place. And that is how, what forms the essence of who you are as a person, you know, in their worldview. And, and that kind of just fundamentally starts to happen in a really organic way when you're really participating with your place by eating and planting back. It's a very intimate thing to just go dig up these plants in a reverent way and like just observe their, their, their morphology, what they like, what they don't like, what's their soil, what is, what is like the actual like physical growth characteristics of these plants like. Uh, do they taste different in different soils? Different habits, different habitats create different habits in plants, you know, and you get to know this in a way that it's like I said, you know, harvesting your food and medicine in a very intentional, intelligent way, in a reciprocal way, is an incredible form of field science. You really do, you get to know the pollinators, you get to see things in a totally different way. And I think more people should be doing that, but my caveat to that is I think people need to be doing that in a very sensitive way, in a, in a, in a very reverent way, in a very, and I'm not talking like, super spiritual, overly reverent people. I'm just talking about like practically reverent, you know, like actually have some, ha have like for me, the 
highest form of an offering and reverence is like going back out of my way to plant seeds. I'm gonna like, I've been harvested out of all this milkweed. I've been making milkweed pickles. I've been like just eating milkweed all the time. Milkweed's a really significant pollinator plant. You know, I've been like picking monarch caterpillars off the milkweeds and putting them on other milkweeds. And like just the amount of pollinators that I'm seeing on these plants, I'm like, I'm taking a lot of milkweed, you know, but like every year for the past couple of years, I've also harvested a lot of milkweed seed. And in the fall I go out and I like, I plant a lot of milkweed, you know, and I took Jenna's students out with me last year and we just like planted a huge bag of milkweed on the river, you know, and I think that like creating these long-term relationships is one of the best ways to untrain yourself from your from our like entitled instant gratification mindset because like there's not instant gratification. It takes time. It's it's frustrating. And it's like something that like if you don't want to just get into this for like the fad kind of aspect of it, but like hunker down and like take some responsibility, this is it's a good way, you know. And it and it, because you're entering into like a long term committed relationship with your place. And um like my my friend Teo he, uh, he has this Indigenous Futures podcast. It's really good. He's like a sci-fi writer, and he's like this Apache dude that does like Indigenous Futurism sci-fi writing and story building. <clears throat> and when I was talking to him about this, he was like, yeah, dude, like all these white people be like, oh, I'm just not going to touch anything anymore, and I'm going to take my hands off. You know, like I, I'm not going to like, we've already messed things up enough. I'm not going to. I'm not going to do anything because I don't want to make any mistakes. And he's like, that's cowardly. Like, you need to be, like, hands-on. Like, you got to be willing to make mistakes. you got to be willing to try, take responsibility. Because as he said, he's like, y'all aren't going anywhere. Like, we're here, you know? And, like, we have to be here and show up in a super culturally sensitive way that, like, takes into account, like, the historical context of why we're here, how we got here, and what's happened, you know? We need to, like, create healthy reference points for like, well, what, what are healthy reference points for like healthy, intact ways that we can live here? So that's a big thing. So like a lot of what I do has become a form of experimental archeology. span You know, I'm out like looking for these plants and I, and it's become a predictable pattern. Like a lot of people like generally think of food as being like in the forested areas, but honestly in the Intermountain West, the food is always like, in the open desert, you know, in the open sagebrush. Like if you wanna like go dig roots in the springtime and you go out into the open sagebrush areas of the Intermountain West, it's just, it's hard to like walk around without stepping on food. And what these are, these, these, they are literally gardens that completely dissolve this dichotomy between hunter-gatherers and agriculture. And this dichotomy has been created by social scientists of the colonial period as a way to justify genocide and land theft because according to like the John Lockean theory that was a part of Manifest Destiny was if you're not subduing the land you don't have um, entitlement to it you know and when the settlers were coming out with Manifest Destiny and the Doctrine of Discovery it was it was used as a way to justify taking land was by like, well, they're not using it. They're not farming it. And man, y'all, they were using, they were managing the land in a more sophisticated, far-sighted way than they ever could have imagined. And what we have now are what are called archaeo-ecosystems. 
Who heard about the decision of Bears Ears being tribally co-managed? You know why that happened? Is because of these archaeo ecosystems. A lot of the plant populations by these sacred cultural sites were put there. They were they are ancestral plant food populations, like the little wild potato that grows that they found a lot at all these sites and all of these plants. Like you start to recognize these patterns on the landscape of where to look. And every time I'm like going out to these places, I know where to track them and I find them. And I'm like, yeah, here's the same plant population in a different form. Like I've been tracking this from like up in Washington all the way down to Southern New Mexico by the, Mex the Mexico border in the Gila wilderness. And it's the same pattern across the board of these like specific plant populations of these bread roots. I've been following a trail of breadcrumbs like from by the Canadian border all the way to the Mexican border. And, you know, I owe so much of it to Finn because she was just like, she would tell me all these areas. Um, and I would, and I went to them like after she died, you know, like I was spent a lot of time in the Gila and she was like, man, the Gila wilderness, that's like one of the more unknown intact places, you know, where you'll find a lot of these gardens. And I happened to be there on a really wet spring and there's this bread root. It's, they're called blue dicks. They're, they're like in the lily family. They're like a big starchy bulb, you know? And when I was walking amongst the prickly pears and the slopes by the canyons in the Gila, I was just like, I couldn't, I, at first I thought it was just like a lawn of grass but I looked closer and realized how succulent it was. And I was like, oh my God, these are blue dicks. And I was literally walking on a lawn of blue dicks. And according to her, she said that that was like part of the, uh, like the old Apache, what are known as hoops, you know? And how I said there was like the seasonal round of a place where like you start in the spring in the low country and you go up high and then you come back down low. Like this concept is called a hoop and every landscape has its own hoop. And we've just been tracking these hoops and collecting the seeds and just moving them around and, and trying to get them out of places. This is what I've mainly been focusing on is getting them out of places that have a lot of grazing pressure. Because cattle grazing is just, it's hard on the landscape. Honestly, the way we manage cows, I have nothing against cows. I actually really like cows, but like the way we've taken these Eurasian swamp creatures and brought them over to the Intermountain West and managed them on this land, it's like, they're really hard on these specific types of root plants. And I, I spent a lot of time up in the Steamboat area last September. You know, I was in the Yampa River Shed harvesting Yampa seed. This is what that whole river shed is named after. This is what the Yampa Tika Band of Utes was named after. They were actually called the Yampa Eaters. And Yampa is a wild carrot, call it dirt candy, like really sweet and delicious. And it is from you know, Mexico all the way up to Canada, probably one of the most incredible, culturally significant, sweet, amazing foods ever. And I love them. And I was in this area watching like herds of sheep in the thousands run around, you know, and just seeing just like how hard they are on these plants, you know, and I was going in and getting as much seed as I could and then been putting them in other places where there's not as much grazing pressure. Was doing some other research later and found out that there's actually a species of Yampa endemic in Oregon that is like critically endangered because of grazing and development. 
and the woman that did her whole dissertation on this conservation assessment of this yampa species said she's like yeah i'm not technically like we're not gonna be able to do this and i'm in like a weird bureaucratic position because like this is kind of like against our whole ethos but like the best chance of survival that this species has is to be moved out of its native range you know a lot of scientists are recognizing this but they're like, our hands are tied. We're, we, we are in a bureaucratic gridlock because it's a big no-no, you know? But they also, there's a bit of a schizophrenia in that because after, when they do big reclamation projects, they'll bring in a bunch of native seed from other areas and plant it in there, you know? So they're constantly kind of like betraying their own roles. So it's really interesting. <clears throat> yeah, these are these are really important cultural heritage species. Just going around and, and making friends with them and observing them and just like experimenting. And that's like coming back to food and why I love it. I love food. We all love food. Like who doesn't love food? I love food. Like it's and these food these are just beautiful foods and it's a really incredible way to like connect to your place and if y'all know me intimately at this time you'll know that i've just been like frantic and manic lately just trying to like harvest everything because there's so much to harvest you know like service berries apricots are popping you know it's just i'm just like ah it's like too much you know and like when you know where to look and how to look it you're just you become very overwhelmed with what's available in the fringes like Jen and I were getting a bunch of cattail pollen. I got this in like an hour and we went up to the high country and got spruce pollen. And a lot of these things, these are bitter roots that we dug up on the Grand Mesa. We dug them too late because the root bark didn't slip right off and they're really bitter or they're, you know, they're always a little bit bitter, but they're really bitter. And the thing about this is timing. You really get to know like the timing of your landscape. And when you're invested in harvesting these foods, if you want to get the cattail pollen, you gotta be on it. If you wanna get the spruce pollen, like you gotta be on it because you have such a short window. And if you're not disciplined, you'll miss it. With the bitterroot, there's like, bitterroot is probably one of the most special, culturally significant plant foods in the West. It's incredible. This was like, uh, this was pygmy bitterroot, but the, the regular bitterroot, the Luisia rediviva is the Latin name. This, it's the root that Lewis from like Lewis and Clark sent to England in a plant press and it got wet like years later and sprouted back, you know? Like you could take a bitter root and peel it and like throw it out in the sun for a while and just like keep it on your shelf for like years and then like take it and stick it in a pot and it'll grow back. So the Latin, like the, the species name is Rediviva because they like come back to life. I've been tracking these across Colorado and I've been finding areas where these grow really abundantly and this year I had, I really wanted to like dig them and get to know them because for me that's like how I develop these intimate relationships with these plants is like I dig them and I eat them and I like experiment. I'm like, how do you, it's like when you're going on a date with somebody, you know, you kind of got to get to know them slowly through time and seeing what people like and what they don't like. And I got to them too late. The root bark just didn't slip right off. Like traditionally with bitterroot, when you dig it at the perfect time of the year, the whole root bark will slide right off like a sock. And not only the outer bark, but the inner cambium bark will just peel right off. And if you've ever been to Missoula, Montana, anybody? Most of that whole city is developed on top of like gigantic bitterroot digging grounds. You know, that whole place that they developed that whole city on was like a huge bitterroot garden that was tended by the inland Salish people. And there's there, there's still places where you can go like right there in around Missoula and find bitter root growing. 
And uh, so this is like, these foods <clears throat> are really special and they represent a history that has not been given much, much light, you know? And when you start developing relationships with these plants, you start developing a relationship with history. And, and it's not an easy history to learn because it's painful. It, there's a lot of grief in this history and it opens up new questions of like, well, who are we really? You know, like what is our purpose here? Are we, we are, it, it's made me realize like we are capable of having symbiotic relationships with our place. And unfortunately we're trying to do that within this capitalistic private land paradigm. And we're just gonna have to make do until we, something else shifts, you know, but this is what I do. This is my life, you know, and sharing this is like sharing, it's really like sharing a piece of myself you know this is like really the most important thing to me and I've been learning I'm always learning and I'm always proving myself wrong and I'm always finding new ways to explore this that I didn't expect like this has changed so much from like what I've when I first started learning about these this plants and this concept of like ethnobotany and history it's changed so much and I've grown so much through this and I really encourage all of you to start really getting in there and like give yourself permission to play and to and to like become your place through food and become your place like through reciprocity like reciprocity is the most important thing because like humans are we're a keystone species and we're, we're doing a really bad job and what i want to tell you all is that we don't have to the narrative that all you can do is mitigate is is like you can do so much better and, and it's really easy to um look at the world and just feel that sense of mind rotting helplessness and hopelessness that just spirals you down into a depression. But for me, this is my, what I can do within my sphere of influence. And it's like how I, it's how I cope, honestly, you know? And this is the only thing I really know to do. And for me, it's good enough because I think that it's really just, it's leaving a hole open to something, something so much bigger than ourselves. And it re represents, it just represents so much. Thanks for listening. Join us for our next talk on Deconstructing Invasion Biology, a critique of unscientific biases towards invasive species, and how invasion biology affects people's relationship with plants and place. This episode was produced by Jeff Wagner and edited by me, Riley Lopez. Our introduction music is by the Sim Redmond Band. Many special thanks to Gabe Crawford, Rampai Noikau, Gregory Pettis, and the many teachers on plants and seeds who helped bring this knowledge together. You can learn more about our work at layinggroundwork.org.